0: The feeding of the 5,000. If you've gone to church any amount of time in your uh, upbringing or even as an adult, uh, or you've sat through children's Sunday school classes, no doubt you have heard about Jesus Christ feeding the 5,000. It's one of the most well known miracles, a supernatural miracle. And it's easy to pass over quickly on some of the miracles and think, well, of course, this is the God man. If we really believe that this is Jesus Christ, This is the one who has come in the flesh. Of course he can do these things. But there's a greater spiritual significance that we must grasp as we go through this. For example, the feeding of the 5,000, yes, it does show the power of Christ. It shows his creativeness and all of that. But it also presents him as the second Moses who brings salvation to his people. And we don't want to miss that aspect of it. For example, you will see that Jesus leads them into the wilderness. Who was it that led the children of Israel out of bondage through the sea into the wilderness? It was Moses, right? In John 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of heaven, just as manna came down from heaven to feed that multitude for 40 plus years. We'll see even in the orderly seating arrangements of 50s and 100s that that is uh, analogous to the whole idea of the ordering of the people under certain leaders, uh, under the Mosaic Code, and of course the provision of food and manna. So let's read the text. We're going to be taking verses 30 to 44 of Mark 6. Beginning in verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he came to them and he said, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and they even got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it had become quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. He answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii and bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, Well, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed the food and he broke the loaves. And he kept giving it to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces, and also of the fish. And there was about 5,000 men that ate of the loaves. Let's pray once again. Father God, we do come before you and we acknowledge our own weakness and frailty and our own minds that are so limited to grasp spiritual truth. Oh Lord, we, we desperately need the Holy Spirit to understand these things. And so Lord, even as you display yourself as the all-sufficient Savior in this text before us, Lord, would you provide spiritual eyes to fully understand the impact of this text? Lord, we know that you are the provider of, of all, and even for us as Christians, that you provide the righteousness we need to be seen as holy in your sight. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you for this miracle story in Mark. And Lord, give us understanding, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. So the context earlier in Mark 6 was Jesus had sent the twelve out to preach and to teach. He had given them authority. He sent them out to preach. Mark puts in the middle of this, we see they return and they report to him, but in the middle of that story is the story of the martyrdom of John the Baptist. And Herod, of course, throws a feast. It's his birthday. Uh, John the Baptist is ultimately executed. And, And we saw the reason why was because he was a holy and righteous man. He declared the truth of God. He had a zeal for God. And he would say, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. As we know, Herod married his brother's wife. And so his wife did not like that. And so this was the opportune time. The daughter does a dance for them. He says, ask whatever you will. He makes a foolish oath, and then he fulfills that oath with the beheading of John the Baptist. And so now we come to this text here, and it's very interesting because Mark moves from one banquet to another type of a banquet. Herod was the host in the previous banquet. Who is the host in this banquet? It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in a palace, as the previous one was, but it's where? In the wilderness. It's not not just the high elite Galilean officials of the Roman army who were invited, but all are able to come to the one that Jesus hosts. And so we have a different type of banquet before us. Jesus satisfies the needs of the people in stark contrast to Herod's deadly party which cost the life of the Baptist John. Jesus performs some 35 miracles and there's only one miracle that occurs in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it is the one that is before us. I think there's some significance to that. Um, it's very common that some would become, uh, occur in the synoptics and be repeated there, but even John includes this and in fact gives us a great commentary about it, all of John 6. Even in Mark's mind, I think that this particular story is very important for he alludes back to it a couple times Uh, we're going to see that next time in our text after jesus walks in the water verse 52 just look over on the next page for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves but their heart was hardened so this is so significant it occurs in all four gospels it's so significant that mark points back to it and then even in the the feeding of the four thousand which comes in chapter eight Mark points back to this occasion again. And of course, all through this, it's anticipating what? That spiritual feast of the the Last Supper with the disciples. And so it's a very significant story here, and it anticipates even that. So my purpose is simple, that we as Christians would be convinced of the sufficiency of Christ in all things. And every possible need that you have, that Christ is sufficient. He's sufficient to meet every need. So you should have received an outline in your bulletin. We're going to look at this under three simple points. The provision of rest in the first three verses. The provision of a compassionate Savior who, who meets our spiritual needs. We'll see that in the second point. And then finally, that the provision of physical needs as well. So first of all, verses 30 to 32, the provision of rest. We all need to rest from our labors. And from time to time, it is good to have an extended season of rest. Look look at it with me again. Verse 30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. You see, spiritual work is draining work. Physical labor, you think, oh, well, that's so much harder. Spiritual work is actually more mentally taxing on one that rest is even more essential. They reported all that they had done and taught, and, and you can almost picture the scene that God had blessed their labor so much that they didn't come back and just say, well, like we went out to Adams or we did this, and well, we, we were faithful, but you know, we didn't see a whole lot. They're just like, they've got a list. We, we can't t- can't wait to tell you all that the Lord had done, all that God has done through our labors. We might compare that to the first time that God has used you. Maybe in leading a family member, or someone a friend to Christ, or, or maybe in some ministry where you've taught your first Sunday school lesson and, and you were expecting it to be a flop, and by God's grace, He just... He blessed it and lights were going on and people were getting it and you're exhilarated, you're excited, you're thankful to God that He would use such a weak vessel in declaring His glory. And so they're excited. They're reporting all of this. But of course, this doesn't last long, right? The crowd finds them. The people are pressing upon them. And the text actually says so that they did not even have time to eat. (laughs) So that Jesus says... We need to actually leave this area and go to a secluded place. They needed time away. Rest after labor is a good thing. We've already seen it a few times in this Gospel. And so, he leads them into the wilderness. Uh, the, The NAS has secluded place. It's recorded in verse 31, 32, and again in verse 35, desolate place. It's all the same word it's the word that means out into the wilderness out away so Jesus leads his inner circle the disciples away much like Moses leads the people and Joshua after Moses would lead the people now this word for rest is very interesting well you think okay on the surface the English word rest could just mean sit down and kind of take a load off for a couple minutes but The the Greek word actually means to cause someone to gain relief from toil. To to cause to give rest. It has the underlying idea of refreshment and reviving. Don't you love that? It's a little bit more than just kind of resting or taking a siesta, but that there's there's, there's something a little bit deeper going on. Now, this rest does not take place at the Four Seasons Resort. It doesn't take place at a f- five gold star, whatever, five star gold star, whatever you say that, uh, timeshare. It takes place in the wilderness. And Luke is helpful because he tells us where they went, okay, right? They're in the area of Capernaum, right? And in Luke 9.10, he says, He withdrew with them to Bethsaida, a solitary, deserted place. And this would be just slightly east over where the Jordan actually feeds the Sea of Galilee. And so it's not a great distance away. In fact, it's only about four miles by water, about eight miles by foot. Now it's interesting because the, the method of travel, if you were going across, for example, the top of the Sea of Galilee, you could either walk it, and you know, walking eight miles is pretty far <laughs> you know, for us, but walking eight miles or actually just going in a boat And gliding over there, right? And so they chose to get in the boat, um, one way to rest, even just not walking that far. But it was eight miles by foot, but ironically, as we'll see, the people on foot actually beat them there. (laughs) So they're obviously seeing the boat. They're running along, maybe calling others from towns and villages, the Lord is in the boat, he's heading this way, come and follow You know, we don't know, but all we know is the people are already there by the time they get ashore. Could be that the winds were contrary. Could be that they were straining at the oars. In fact, that leads right into the next story, right? When Jesus is walking on water, there's turbulence on the water. But it doesn't really matter. But the point is, is that they were going a short distance away and the people beat them there. Jesus is seeking to take them into the wilderness for refreshment. Reminds me of the hymn. We didn't sing it today. Guide me, O the great Jehovah pilgrim in this barren land. And Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace and the wilderness and Israel when it went to find its rest. Rest is a good thing. Rest is a good thing. Even just a good night's rest is a good thing to actually get a good seven or eight hours, you know, and that's maybe not so common for all of us. Uh, rest on the Lord's Day, a one in seven principle, is a good thing for our souls, for our bodies. Even extended times, vacations occasionally, and those kinds of things are good for our souls. Now, sadly, in our day, in the the day of food stamps and handouts and all that, what needs to be declared is, is to not be given to sloth, right? To not be given to that. And so in the 21st century, the same warning needs to be made that was made to the Hebrews in Hebrews 3 and 4. That theme of rest that the writer of the Hebrew gives. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore let us fear if while a promise to enter his rest, any one of us may have come short of it. For indeed... We have had the good news preached to us, just as they also, pointing back to Israel, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those that heard. It's referring back to Psalm 95, other texts, where they hardened their hearts under the proclamation of the word. Probably the most important rest for those of us who are in Christ is to rest in Christ. Those of us who are Christians to rest in the finished work of Christ and are you resting in Christ today? No matter how weary you have become, our standing with God does not change if we are believing in Christ who has paid for our sins, His righteousness imputed to our account. He sees us without taking down the list that you haven't performed perfectly well this week. It's not like that. We rest in what Christ has done. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, the work of redemption, of redeeming all of God's people, was done forever. And that was 2,000 years ago. So your efforts at doing good works is not going to earn you favor with God. We rest in what He has done in the past. No matter how weary we become, and no matter how weighed down we become, we rest in Christ. Paul tells the Galatians that He sent forth His Son, at the right time, that He might redeem us from the curse of the law so that we're no longer slaves, but we're sons and daughters in the household of God. And that is a blessed thing, brethren. You are in God's family. If you are in Christ, you are sons and daughters of God. And, and when, you, when the, that's our family, that's who we want to be with. You men who go on business trips and you have to leave your family and you have to stay in a hotel or maybe you have some, some a family to stay with or something, it's not like home, is it? You, you, you're longing to go back home. Your children, maybe you have a sleepover at uh, somebody's house, a, a friend's house or something. Oh, it may be fun, but it's not quite like home. So too, with this, we want to be with the Lord. We want to be with God's people. And our sin problem has been taken care of. As John writes in 1 John 2. 2 he Himself is a propitiation for our sins. That is, He satisfied God's wrath. We talked about the attributes of God in our community group the other night. It was a wonderful, delightful discussion of which our minds were stretched like a rubber band to the max because who can fathom these things? But one thing we came away with, God is altogether holy and just in all that He does, and yet He has satisfied my sin, which is an offense to Him, in His Son. His wrath was poured out on His own Son as a substitute who stood in my place and your place if you're trusting in Christ. All of us have other types of needs. We have financial needs, health needs. We have some struggling with cancer, some with the threat of cancer. We have some who are estranged in certain relationships, some that are given to loneliness, some that want to be married. All of these kinds of things are real needs that are among us. They're legitimate But the solution is not to run and give effort to meeting those needs, but to look to Christ who is the all-sufficient One who can fill what is lacking in your heart. The longing and the aching for these other things which are legitimate, I'm not saying they're not, can be satisfied in an all-sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter writes in his second letter, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Absolutely everything. Joshua was a shepherd that led his people as the baton, as we read in Numbers 27, the baton is handed to Joshua. He is the shepherd that leads them into the rest, into the promised land. And, and we too, also as we rest in Christ, what's part of that is what? That we're not toiling about trying to do all our good works to earn favor with God, right? We're resting in the finished work of Christ. But there is a holy anticipation of being with the Lord. Seeing the Lord face to face for the first time. And we see Him in the Scriptures. We hear of it in the sermon and the proclamation of the Word. But to see a pierced Savior face to face for the first time is a purifying hope as John tells us. And I hope you have that hope looking to that final rest. When that Then there will be perfect rest. <laughs> it won't be a rest where then we have to go back to work or whatever. And, and, and to long for those words in the meantime, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest that your Master has provided. Do you long for those words? I hope you do. That's the best rest of all, resting in Christ. But having considered the provision of rest, secondly, the provision of a compassionate Savior who meets our spiritual needs in the here and now. And, and look at it again with me. In verse 33. The people saw them going. Many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, He saw a large crowd and He felt compassion for them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. There's three things I want you to see, mainly from verse 34. First of all, Jesus knows your deepest need. Today, as you sit here, Jesus knows your deepest need. And he is moved with compassion. Now, brethren, this is not some kind of a stoic thing to where, yeah, they're pathetic. I'm sinless. I'm the Son of God. They're fallen humans. Get that out of your mind. There's nothing mechanical. There's nothing stoic about this. Being moved with compassion is a very powerful word. It's a word that that speaks of coming from the pit of our stomach. It's, it's, It's a word that under the root word has the idea of a stomach or intestinal tract. It's to be moved deep down in the pit of your stomach. He was moved with compassion. Out of the four accounts that we have, of this miracle, Mark is the only one that tells us that aspect of it. I'm so glad he does. I'm so glad that this, this is in there and this is where we compare Scripture with Scripture. And by the way, the word, <laughs> the word alone is, just sounds like it's, it's something. Let me see if I can say it. Splagazigomai. It's something that just comes down from deep down within you and it's only used in the New Testament of Jesus. So this word is only used of Jesus. See another example of Jesus entering in with emotion to the people around Him. And When Lazarus had died, do you remember when they called Him and they said, come? and, And He waits and He still teaches and He comes. And We don't have time to go there, but John 11, you can look at it later, but it says, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. That's a different Greek word, but the point is the same. He's greatly moved and troubled. It's the very next verse, or within two verses later, where we have the shortest verse in the Bible, kids. You guys know what it is? Jesus wept. Jesus was so troubled. He was so moved because He entered in into the emotion of what was going on that Jesus Himself wept. wept. This is a Savior that can come and meet every one of your needs. It's a Savior that has compassion. He knows your deepest need. We can trust Him. And the whole shepherd metaphor is a beautiful picture because He is the uh, spiritual leader that fulfills and exceeds Moses, who was the great deliverer of His people. After the exile, and later in uh, Isaiah 63, it says, Then this people remembered the days of old, of Moses, where, he, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with shepherds of his flock. Well, we're told why he's moved with compassion, and it's because the people were like sheep without a shepherd. He, all of these Old Testament analogies and, and types and shadows pointing to the idea of a shepherd faithfully leading the flock of the sheep. And, and he saw these people and, and, and he's moved with compassion because they're sheep without a shepherd. The Pharisees, the religious rulers, the Sadducees, those were the ones that should have been shepherding the people of Israel. Those were the ones that should have been giving the proper spiritual instruction and they had let them down and jesus knew it in ezekiel 34 uh, it says in verse 2 thus says the lord Woe, shepherds of israel who have been feeding themselves should not the shepherds feed the flock they were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered i think it's something along these lines that Ezekiel thirty-four, the Isaiah forty verses ten and eleven, where it talks about God being mighty, but then it also that He's a tender shepherd, like a shepherd, He will tend to His flock, Israel. The sheep aren't the smartest animal in the animal chain. <laughs> I don't know if you've been to a petting zoo of some sort. They kind of run into each other, and food's got to be put right in front of them. And we're like the sheep, brethren. <laughs> So don't take that as an offensive thing. It's what the Word of God says. And, 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 and so sheep need shepherds. Under shepherds on the local church level, the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows and can meet every one of our needs. Moses, we saw, had prayed that God would appoint a new shepherd over Israel. And, and, and so Joshua was appointed and he, he himself is a type of Christ. To come later in Ezekiel 34, it says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Ezekiel is 300 years or so after David. This is speaking of the, David's throne that would never have an end to the reigning and fulfilled in Christ. Jesus shows himself to be a true spiritual leader. One that is compassionate. Thirdly, Jesus provides what is most important for us, brothers and sisters, and that is spiritual food. Look at it. It's right at the end of verse 34. He's moved with compassion. The crowds have come. They've walked some, well, at least the ones that went the greatest distance, some eight miles. Maybe some picked up each mile along the way. We don't know. But but there's a large, huge crowd. And what does He do? He begins to teach them and notice it, many times things he doesn't say I have a little homily on the topic of this and now we're done many things we can assume we're talking hours if not most of the day of spiritual instruction from the son of God he meets their spiritual need before anything physical is considered before looking at the worn out clothing and before looking at the sandals that are worn out or the little children that maybe came without any sandals at all before meeting anything physical and considering their hunger, what does He do? He meets their spiritual needs. And this this part's often overlooked when you hear expositions of this story, right? It's just, Isn't it so nice? Be prayed and the food just kept right. But this part is important. What we need, our deepest need, is to be spiritually filled first. Then the, the physical things will come in due course. The application to us is that don't ever take for granted the Word of God. First of all, we have it. Multiple copies probably sitting at our, each of our homes, right? If you don't have a Bible, let me know. I will give you one. I'll give you two. I'll give you, uh, we all have Bibles. So not to neglect this even in our personal reading opportunities for bible study men's breakfast ladies all the different avenues that we have to actually come and to learn of the lord and to learn from his word and even on sundays the proclamation of the word of god how vital it is and and as is common with mark because remember mark is a short it's a fast-paced gospel it's just right he doesn't give what the sermons were about or whatever The point isn't what he taught so much. We do have that recorded in places in Mark, right? But the point is the one who is doing the teaching. It is the very Son of God. is the Word Himself proclaiming the Word. And this John, of course, the theologian, brings out the spiritual significance of this. We're going to look at it more later, but John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. So the spiritual significance. Having considered the provision of rest, spiritual needs, finally, the provision of physical needs, and in this case, food. The disciples become anxious. Now, this this part of the story is where it's it's, kind of humorous. You've got to kind of track with it. Let's just read 35 and 36 for now. Now when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Uh, Just a little irony, Jesus is the one that said, let's go to the wilderness or the secluded place or whatever. I think Jesus knows where he's at. I think Jesus knows what time it is, (laughs) okay, so to speak, as far as where the sun is at. And then in verse 36, here's the disciples telling Jesus what to do, right? Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Who's the one complaining? Is it the probably 20,000 people that are listening? Because it says 5,000 men. A a very conservative estimate for Jewish families, which usually had many, many children, would be 20,000. Could be 30,000. Whatever. Thousands of people. Is it the people saying, hey, can you... Can you get to the conclusion? Maybe some of you right now are saying that. Can you? Uh, <laughs> can you it, it's not the people; it's the disciples. <laughs> the people are just soaking it in, right? And, and so, there, just a few little ironies there. But uh, so it's perhaps where we're told that the time is around Passover. John, chapter six, the beginning tells us it was Passover time. That was when. What season? Spring. Yeah. So it was, it was more more than likely April, and, and around that time. In that area, sunset would be about 6 p.m. So we can guess, some commentators guess, it's probably 4 p.m. or something. It's beginning to get late. If people have a long ways to walk, they're not going to walk in the pitch dark. So so whatever, it's it's in the late afternoon. Um, And so look at what Jesus' response is. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. Now, the you is very emphatic, okay? In other words, it's, You, in particular, give them something to eat. And then, of course, they respond, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? Now, that was about a year's wages, 200 days' worth of wages, so maybe a year's worth of wages. So they asked that, and he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. When they found out, it was five with two fish. Now, it's... A humorous story here because he says you give them something to eat. What is he saying? He's asking them to do something that really is more or less impossible, right? But Jesus is the one who does do things that are the impossible on the human level, right? In their minds, this is impossible. John 15, 5, you can do nothing apart from me. But in the end, they do exactly what they were told to do. It is them who actually gives them something to eat. Jesus, of course, will provide now, you have to think, and the redemptive historical connections here, and the people, they, 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 they're brought out of bondage, in, in Egypt, right? They're in the wilderness, and they're crying out for food. They cry out for water. Later, they cry out for meat, and, and God provides. As early as Exodus 16, they're just beginning in the wilderness. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread down from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Now, Moses begins to fret at times when the people actually come to him and say, you know, just like in a rebellion type of thing. And I see the disciples here kind of fretting. So there's some similarity. <clears throat> Numbers 11:13. Uh, 13. Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me, saying, give us meat so that we may eat. Well, as I said, Jesus tells them to go look. John 6 tells us that it's a little boy that has the bread and the fish. Now, some of you probably have heard the story told where everybody probably had had their sack lunch and this boy had a sack lunch and everybody had their sack lunches and Really what happened was everybody just busted out their stash or whatever, and that's how everybody... uh, And and so go and do likewise. Go and share, right? Now the Bible does tell us to share. I mean, you know, Acts, especially in the early chapters of Acts. Koenia, fellowship, and they they had all things in common. But that's not the point of this text, okay? And that's not what this text is teaching. We're missing the point to go give a little and expect a huge return, and and that's the way some would teach this text. But this, is brethren, is pointing to the supernatural. It's like manna coming down out of heaven. The disciples did everything they could by, by gathering all the available food that was there and organizing the people to sit in groups. And then in answer to prayer, God did what is impossible. And so too for us when we face things that look like it's impossible. Being healed from cancer, getting that job promotion, having that wayward teenage son come home—having all of these things that seem impossible on our earthly level and in our limited minds—with God, all things are possible. We can ask Him. We can do everything that we can in our power, and ask Him to do it if He's pleased to do it. I've already alluded—they sat in groups. Uh, another, again, to point our minds back. To the Moses and the older wilderness uh, wanderings, Exodus 18, they're assigned groups of thousands, five hundreds, hundreds and fifties, uh, under certain leaders. In Numbers 31, towards the end of that 40 years, uh, Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands, and the captains of hundreds, who had come from the service in the war. Now, the point is, is that it's just another indicator that this throws our minds back to this historical redemptive occasion that had taken place in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. And John 6, I keep wanting to get to John 6. The green grass, um, obviously it's springtime, Passover, so the grass is going to be green. I think of Psalm 23, which somebody in our family wrote out from memory this morning with misspelled words and couldn't wait to tell me when I was making my coffee. And she's daydreaming now and doesn't realize I'm talking about her. But um, anyway, in Psalm 23, too, he makes me to lie down in green pastures, and so too the people are told to lay or to like to sit in green pastures and to sit in organized groups. First 41, the bread kept coming. Um, Jesus, he looks up, or he took the five loaves and the fish, and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving it to them to the disciples to, to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them also. Jesus gives thanks. We don't know what the content of his prayer was. And by the way, he's not, that's, there's, he's not blessing the food necessarily as much as blessing God for the provision of the food, right? And so that's something we can take away as we pray before our meals. Uh, we don't know what the content was. Praise you, Lord God. Creator of all things, you know, who makes the bread come down from heaven, whatever. We don't know what the content was, but he, he prayed, he gave thanks. And in verse 42, a fascinating thing, they all ate and were satisfied. Now, this was not a, you know, you know, a little, you know, I don't know, a Panera bread lately. I've been meeting people there, but a Panera bread, you know, they ask if you want an apple or like part of a baguette, and it's a little short. Piece of bread. Has anybody been there? I'm the only one. Okay. (laughs) I don't know why they're so popular anyway, but it's not like everybody got a little this, which is kind of like, you know, it it, it scratches the itch, but I really need to get home so I can eat a real meal. I don't think that's not the point here. The point here is that they were satisfied. They were filled to the full. They were lacking nothing. Again, pointing to Christ being the all-sufficient One. It's a divine expression of His compassion that He meets the needs of His people. And furthermore, look at the leftovers. Sanctified leftovers. They picked up 12 full baskets of broken pieces. The people had ate to the fill, and there was so much, that, like at Thanksgiving, I never clear off my plate... Because <laughs> it just seems like there's so much food and all of this. But, you know, that there's leftovers. So in this situation, they ate, and they were filled, and they were satisfied. Now, when it says that in verse 44, there were about 5,000 men. That's this, there's different Greek words for men in general, which mean men and women. This is the word for male, aner. Okay, so this is so this means that there were five thousand actual males, and usually older men, right? With um, this word, because there's certain words for young boys. But so that we can take away again that who knows how big this crowd was? Maybe we'll find out in heaven. But it was a large crowd. And in Matthew 14, verse 21. He specifically tells us that 5,000 men besides women and children. So we're not reading this into it. This isn't an all-a-male event. It says, besides the women and children. So this was a huge crowd, a very huge crowd. Now turn back to John chapter 6 with me. And I just want to read again verse 31. By the way, at the very beginning of John 6, is the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 4 is where it tells us there was the Passover. Verse 9 is where it says the lad had five barley loaves and fish. Then Jesus walks in the water, in John's account. And then this exposition to the people, a very long, probably much more than this. And Colin read a good chunk of this for us. But look in verse 31. Our fathers ate of the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. It was my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven. Notice the repetitions. Where is the origin? Where is the origin, right? And so he's trying to give the significance of what had just happened. It is the bread of God which comes down out of heaven and notice and gives What? Nobody's looking at their (laughs) Bible. Life to the world, okay? Verse 33, 34. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus says this profound statement, and Rob Ty did a series a long time ago, probably still on the internet, of the I am's of John, and this is one of them. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He is the living bread. And later, and around our time of the Lord's Supper, we'll look at later in the chapter where he connects this actually to the Lord's table as well. Now, at the end of John 6, actually, if you're still there, look at the very end of the chapter. <clears throat> verse 66. We see that, oh, there's this huge crowd... And at the very end of all of this teaching, and by the way, John, there's some profound teaching here. We've just read some of those verses. In verse 66, when Jesus starts talking Reformed theology, as he does throughout, but he's, in verse 65, he was saying to them, for this reason I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him of the Father. And as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So there was a mass exodus of the fair-weather followers that were there for the, the traveling breadbasket, essentially, that left. When you start saying, I can't come to God, except for through you, you've crossed the line, right? And they're So it says many of his disciples, the followers in this case. But look at verse 67 and 68. Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, in some versions, you alone have the words of life. You alone have the words of life. Notice Peter doesn't say, you alone have filled our bellies. You alone have made us more stuff than any feast. He says, no, you alone have the words of life. It's not so much the physical blessings, it's the spiritual blessings. Jesus again and again, life, life, true life, all through this whole passage here. Well, two very quick points of application. First of all, Jesus is the all-sufficient One who is full of compassion. And I know I keep saying that, but you know what? We need to remind ourselves of that, don't we? We, 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 need, to, we, we need to actually think about this. Every t- we all can become weary. We can be on the edge of burnout. Burnout. We can, we can begin to fret and, and, and I'm weary. I, I'm, I'm one that is weary. And, and where do we go to find rest? We need to first cast all of our anxiety upon Him. Why? Because He cares for us. And even in this text, He has deep compassion for His people. The psalmist says, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. It is the spiritual desires that we need. It's the spiritual things that we need most to be satisfied. John 6, I am the bread who comes down out of heaven. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. A perfect spiritual feast. And yet, so many, even so many Christians, are satisfied to run to the stale crumbs of the world to try to find satisfaction from those when we have a living Savior, a living feast, a spiritual feast that is ours. Sometimes we'll turn our back on that and we'll run and we'll go pick up the stale crumbs, the trash, rather than going to the all-sufficient one. This is why we enjoy this covenant meal on a regular basis here, the Lord's table, which we'll have later um, in our prayer meeting. But the significance of this is huge. And and back to John 6, he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, and the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It says later, For my flesh is the true food, and my blood is the true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, the problem is, the Roman Catholic Church take that to say, well, The priest goes whiz-bang, hocus-pocus. Now the bread and the cup is now the actual body and blood of Christ. They take that carnally. Our confession speaks of this. Not carnally, but spiritually. It is a spiritual feast that we enjoy when we come to the Lord's table. And that reminds us that Christ has done it all. And then finally, what is your greatest need? Apart from Salvation's our greatest need. He's provided that for most of us. And we give thanks to God for that. But whether it's financial, whether it's health, maybe it's a job, maybe it's relationally, maybe it's conflict between a husband and a wife, whatever your greatest need is, realize that He alone is sovereign and in control of everything in your life. Jesus is Lord over cancer. He is Lord over the need for money. He's Lord over employment. He's Lord over those conflicts that we have in our life. He is Lord over all. And we can go to Him and He hears us. And we need to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And even if it's daily, hourly, every minute. And to be quick to have short accounts. When there's offenses, to confess that to God. If there's an offense with a brother or sister, to to go and to confess that and to, to make that right. And most of all, to repent of our sins before a holy God, and to trust in Christ's righteousness. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for this glorious text before us and how filled I personally have been spiritually from the study of this text. Lord, I thank You for this, and I pray, Lord, that You would help each of us to grow as Christians who rely on Christ for everything. Lord, that we would rest in His finished work that we would be sure to get proper rest, that we would hunger for Your Word as it is offered, and even on the daily basis of reading Your Word. Lord, to the end, that we might be those that would glorify You in all things. We thank You that You are the sufficient One. And Lord, if there be any here who do not know You, Lord, I pray that You might change their heart. Take out the heart of stone. Give them a heart of flesh. Help them to see a beauty in Christ.